Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Hello and welcome to episode 152 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today, we welcome John Vanderslice. I found out about John through his album in 2000 called Mass Suicide Occult Figurines, which is out on Barsoup Records. It stuck with me, and I've followed him since. Last month, he released his latest album, The Cedars, on Native Cat Recordings. He's on tour right now with Paved the Lion, and it is worth a listen if you've never dived into the mind of Vanderslice. We talk about how he started late in music, how creating that music has taken some narcissism to survive. We talk about loss of life and the depression that he's been dealing with, and how this album saved his life. Plus, we dive into discussion about having fame and critical acclaim early on in your career and what that does to you during and after. This is probably one of the most emotional episodes that I've done as John really opened up about his struggles with dependency on drugs and the battle he has every day with life, creating art, and keeping his recording studios, Tiny Telephone, afloat. Many of your favorite albums have been recorded there, like ones from Death Cab for Cutie, Sleater Kinney, Deer Hoof, The Mountain Goats, Magnetic Fields, and Spoon. A man not afraid to say what he feels and talk it out. I think you'll really enjoy this discussion. Thanks to all the Patreon supporters out there. You make this happen. If you want to support, head on over to patreon.com slash washedupemo. This is episode 152 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with John Vanderslice. in my in my house growing up. I grew up in Florida. I mean, my parents were great. My mom was amazing, but there was not uh, like there was not uh, like an elevated cultural like <laughs> you know like uh, household. I mean, it was like it's just some backwoods shit. So the the way there's two ways that I found music, and and I think that you see this with a lot of like youth group kids. Like I like when people who are, have been like denied music get it. Um, and it's, it like means a lot more sometimes than people who have like access and encouragement. Um, so there wasn't music in the house ever. And 
the, there was only two times that I ever was like introduced to like, like contemporary music when I was growing up. One was when we would stay with my grandfather on Suwannee river, he had a trailer, uh, like, uh, you know, like a trailer park. And we would stay in his trailer and he had a porch with a jukebox, like a 45 jukebox on it. And which seems insane to me now. Like I have no, no idea how he got it and why like that was like a thing for him. But he allowed my cousin Sammy to pick all of the 45s. And Sammy was a complete black sheep of the family who had like, you know, dropped acid when he was 15, 16 years old. And he had gotten radicalized. <laughs> You know, and, and like radicalized, I mean, like for the South at this, you know, at this point, you know what I mean? Like it mm-hmm. wasn't like, I mean, it was like, like Led Zeppelin and Leonard Skinner and, you know, like, like early Grateful Dead and stuff like that. But for me, in the context of, of like growing up in rural Florida, it was absolutely, completely mind blowing and, and seemingly, you know, like antisocial radical music. And um, so that was my first experience of hearing what, what I thought to be what, what was like really um, harmonically confusing and aggressive, um, aggressive stuff. And then the second thing was when I was in um, fourth grade, I had a, like a crazy crush on my babysitter and she brought over the the Who's um, Tommy uh, record, soundtrack recording, not the album Tommy, but like the film soundtrack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like Tina Turner, <laughs> and like and and I remember that she put that on, and it was like it was like it might as well have been like Anton Webern, like it was completely dissonant and like unknowable. And I remember connecting that feeling with her, and like my like absolute adoration of her. And, and it was like everything I wanted to understand and everything that I wanted out of life was like, I mean, I remember, I remember the day I, I mean, it's completely cleared. And I, I, that day is probably like one of the most important days of my life. And so for better, for worse, I was completely transformed by like those two experiences with not having music or having that limited access what was the way that you like what after that moment what was was it the local record store was it your friends like how were you then you know because that all happens to us we start going on that rabbit hole and we start just we can't get enough what what happened after that it was, it was all cassette culture like from that point on it was it was about seeking out um, mixtapes, dubs of records, and and finding people who were savvier and smarter than you and more experienced so they could, like, transfer their musical knowledge. And this is problematic, too, because those people are all, can be or were potentially, for me, problematic nodes because of drugs. Um, and they tended to be older. I had an older brother and they tended to be like further down the road than I was. So you kind of were, were like almost speeding up your own development by seeking out this music. I'm, I'm, I remember getting, um, a mixtape on it when I was a mixtape when I was in sixth grade and it had, it had yes, fragile and it had Pink Floyd, dark side of the moon 
and it had some early Genesis on it, and it had Led Zeppelin three, and it was like an older. I think I think it was a kid that was like my brother's age, was two years older, and I just remember like completely accepting um, his world in my own. Like if he was shooting heroin, thank God he was like not shooting him, but whatever that person was doing, like would have been completely and totally acceptable to me. And so I was almost like fast tracked into um, like adult, you know, somewhat reckless adult behavior um, because of because I basically found myself seeking out and hanging out with like older kids to get like tapes. There was there was no other way to do it. There were there, records were insanely expensive, and I don't even know if we had a turntable at home. I don't. I just don't remember. I just know that we had a boombox, and that was like my conduit for music. You know what's interesting about that is we talk a lot on this podcast about you know the streaming era. And not having something to look at. Now that you're talking about the mixtapes, you're totally right. You had that guy writing in the the songs, if he even did that. It might have just said, yes, Fragile, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, Genesis. Like It, it might not even have had – so there was like a, an element of unknown on the record or on the tape. Absolutely. And yeah. that's almost like it is a little bit now with streaming where there isn't like you didn't have the records to look through and stare at the photos. Yeah. Well, and also there was like a curatorial like I aspect where there were, you know, my when I look back on this, like my brother's friends had like really, really good taste in music. Like, I mean, I got incredibly lucky and my brother had good taste in music and this really changed how my brain developed, how I first started playing guitar and, and the, the kind of the influences that I, I mean, I, I completely identify with all of that music that radicalized me. I don't, I really haven't rejected it at all. You know, I mean, I probably did for a window, but like, it feels like as relevant as anything in my life. And so I, I think back to like, like how lucky I was in a way that like that I was running in a circle where people had a pretty elevated like sense of music. And and yeah, people were curating this stuff. In those records, people think that they were revered. I mean, they definitely had their share of flack in the press. Oh, absolutely. Something like Fragile was like embarrassing at the time, I thought. I mean, there were so many people that despised prog music when I was growing up that it was like the idea, I remember meeting someone who was like they were a client of a studio and they were in their early 20s and they told me how much they liked early yes. And, I, I, and they were like hip as fuck. And I, I just thought, oh my God, like, <laughs> this is the funniest thing that I've ever seen in my life because this was like, you would definitely get, I don't even know what the, like, the analog today would be, but this is, it just wasn't even like kitschy. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's just no room for something like that. And, and you know, the lines were more clearly drawn then for sure. I mean, the whole like iPod shuffle thing just kind of like destroyed the idea of music genres, which is amazing. And also the idea of identifying with the genre or, or believing that, that any of this stuff is real and not just like clothing that you can like, you know, put on or, you know, it's like a, it's like theater piece, you know, but, I mean, a lot of these bands were, I mean, the Grateful Dead was absolutely despised in my high school. 
and I was like a kind of a pretty um, committed drug taking deadhead. I mean, I probably saw like, I don't know, maybe 15 dead shows when I was in high school. And I probably maybe took acid at two or three of them. And so that was, that's a, you know, traveling and taking acid in some like hockey stadium in fucking Virginia. You know what I mean? Like that is real. You know what I mean? Like, and, and it wasn't like the coolest thing you could do at all. Do you know what I mean? Like the coolest thing you could have done then would have been seeing like, I don't know, minor threat or government issue at some house party. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it was not listening to yes. And you know, or like, or even the clash, you know what I mean? Like yeah. that wasn't, that wasn't like, like really that relevant, you know? I mean, I still think, I mean, that was definitely, I mean, independent, but you're right. It seemed like definitely in my school, there was those kids that were into the hippie music. There were the hardcore kids. And then there were the kids that just listened to the radio. And I kind of fucked with both of them. Like the, both of the, the, the deadhead kids or the fish kids alongside the like punk, you know, were you, were you aware of, that stuff like if i mean you just mentioned those bands but like was there any interest because that's where i mean I, you could also i guess argue that the diy stuff was totally grateful dead too but that ethos that i think your career's sort of gone through and the indie realm and the diy um it seemed to have if if that came from you know the dead and the you know genesis and yes like that's almost like more uh, more uh, interesting than if it just came from you uh, yeah. bowing at the altar of Ian Mackay, which I do. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, actually, it's it, 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 you're you're totally accurate. In, well, in in a way that that's the way it happened. I was very intimidated by um, my brother. Actually, went to his in his his high school classmates were in government issue, and I remember them inviting me to a house party, and I I actually clearly remember thinking I will get punched. Like I, I wasn't like a jock. I definitely wasn't a jock. I was just like a, like a dude who read like sci-fi books and tried to keep to himself. But I felt very <laughs> uncomfortable around people who were like, I, I honestly like looked up to the like punkers and post punkers. And I just didn't think that I could like, I didn't think that I could like, sustain a conversation with them where they wouldn't think that I was like in, uh, a loser, you know, really? I mean? like I was very sure of that. Oh yeah. I was not confident or like in no way was I, I mean, I was in between, I was kind of in between the cracks in some ways because I wasn't. Um, so this, what happened with me is like kind of probably like odd in one way and that I went through, a very, very intense drug phase, very young, Mm -hmm. like 12 to 15, really, really intense. Like I was hard at work. I had an older brother. I had access to drugs. I had friends who were selling cocaine and weed and we like were completely into psychedelics and we were completely into like, whatever we can get our, our hands on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, I think really the only thing that saved me is that, um, that there, it wasn't the scene that I was in opiates weren't a thing, which is, I remember smoking opium twice 
and and loving it. And yeah, I don't remember. I just don't remember there being opiates really around, but there was everything else. Mm-hmm. And those other drugs really fucked me up. I did them too young. It probably caused permanent depression for me and like some other like, you know, really confusing and, and kind of unknowable effects. But, but what happened for me was that when I was 15, I basically went completely clean, but I wasn't straight edge. Like I didn't identify as anything. I just was like lost all my friends who still love doing drugs and didn't feel comfortable enough to like reattach myself to any other community. So, um, so I, didn't feel comfortable any anywhere. You know, I mean, this is like not, I mean, every who felt comfortable when they were 15. It's like, boo hoo. Like I'm not, <laughs> this isn't like a, a huge, you know what I mean? Like, like, but I'm just trying to t- tell you like what was tricky for me. And I basically started out in, in like middle school and junior high, I was like a very, very good student. And then by the time I was in 11th grade, my average was floating somewhere between a D and a D minus. And lucky I hadn't uh, flunked out of any classes. And my principal, who was very, very, he said, he's like, listen, you can take English, 12th grade English in summer school, and I will write a letter for you to get into University of Maryland. And this is only hope, man, because you're, I I had the record at that point for the most suspensions of anyone in high school. Um, And I had done some really fucking crazy shit. I mean, like, I don't know who I was at war with. I don't know who I was like getting back at, but I mean, I had broken into the school numerous times. I, once I spray painted on the side of the school and, and, you know, massive as high letters as I could paint LSD is fun, like on brickwork. You know what I mean? Like it took them like a week to get, you know, once I broke into the, my high school, um, Churchill high school and turned on all the ovens and baked the frozen, like, you know, a dozen pans of like frozen pizza and then threw them down the hallway. And I mean, I was doing crazy shit. And, and so I did that. I took 12th grade English. I had nothing to lose. I was clean then. And I had lost a lot of my friends because they were still on that journey. And the thing is, is that half of them got like mega fucked up from continuing like down that road you're just too young you're starting to get into some more intense stuff and then the other half were fine so it really just depended on who it was but so I got into University of Maryland a year you know I was younger than most students there and that was like the most intense culture shock of my life was going to college because it was you know you didn't have anybody I mean I for college it was if you want to fuck up you can fuck up and then you're done you kind of had to step up yeah I, and I was very, very unprepared because I, I had lost everything as a student. I had like, I had like smoked my way into a fucking black hole. And, you know, I was taking like, <clears throat> you know, I, I was um, trying to get in the, like the school of econ, which is like a separate school at university of Maryland, which was, I don't know. That's another thing. I, I think I felt so guilty towards my parents that I, that I, that they pushed me into like some, useful degree, you know, and I, it ended up being incredibly lucky for me because of just running the studio. But, um, I just remember struggling with like the most basic 
coursework. And I, I just was so unprepared and I, but it was so, it was all voluntary. And for the first time in my life, I wasn't rebel. There was nothing to rebel against. Like no one really cared if I stayed in school. My mom was like the most loving and accepting person. And she had seen me suffer so much that she just wanted me to survive. And I ended up really thriving there. And I ended up getting a degree in econ, which, which I do think became very important for me when when I started like run, running the studio. Wow. And then so when you, you're I mean you're in Maryland, you're close to DC, were you aware of that of stuff but it just didn't interest you or even the ethos of that because it's almost like you you did it naturally uh, anyway. You know, it's so weird. Okay, I'm going to I'll tell you a, a story I think that will illustrate everything. So <clears throat> so when I one summer um, in, I was living in Rockville with my mom. And I think this was the summer before I got into M- Maryland. Um, I was working at a grocery store and I fell in love with someone named Susan Anderson Osborne that was working there. And she was like, absolutely fucking on it. it was like, she was completely current and savvy her taste in music was so far beyond what I was like, what I was like listening, you know, stuff that I was listening to. And I remember she had a few friends over at her house. This is before we became a couple. And I, I just remember feeling very intimidated by her friends. And I, there was an Elvis Costello record that had just come out. So I bought it on vinyl and I brought it over to her, to her, to her, her house. And, I put it on and then after like two or three songs, I remember that she, and it wasn't rude at all. She just walked over to the turntable and then just like took the record off and then, and then put on something else that was like Susie and the Banshees or some deeper shit, you know, or Echo and the Bunny Man or just some like way more modern, relevant stuff to like her and her friends. And then of course to me, and that moment changed my life. And it wasn't a shame thing at all. And it wasn't, she wasn't being uncool at all. She was being actually just like totally matter of fact. And I don't think she ever would have perceived it as like a slight, but it was almost like I remember purging my record collection after that, because I knew that like one day she would be have my house. And it wasn't, again, it wasn't a matter of being like cool or uncool. It was a matter of like, are you connected to the current culture on any level? <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, and like, we had that too. Like I, there's bands I record and they like, they literally have stopped re- listening to music in like 2003. And it's, it's actually totally weird. It's like a time warp thing. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, it, and it feels somewhat funny sometimes. And it also feels like depressing. You know what I mean? And like, I just, that moment changed my life. And I actually Two, if I, you know, I was completely in love with Susan and then I, I allowed her to kind of like guru me into like a different way of listening to music and it, it, it's still with me, you know, so, yeah, what, I became, what changed? Oh, Did, was it like more of a, it was awareness or, uh, was it a, was it a, what was the, what was the piece that sort of opened you up? I think that she was just much more interested in like fucked up music. 
she was more interested in dissonance. She was more interested in like, like, like anti-performance and like actual, like, like energy on, you know, like, um, I remember she played me drums and wires. I mean, fuck. Yeah. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like she played me gang of four, you know, she, she, she played me wire. Like, I mean, holy fuck. Like that to me was dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And can and things like that, like Noi, like she was so far ahead of the curve as far as like my own experience was, you know, was at the time that like it, it again, these moments, these galvanizing moments are inc- like when your brain chemistry permanently changes, like these are really, really important. And that, that happened with me and and, Susan. and it is funny because I think about that, like how that in many ways I was like a kind of like a very confused, shy and, and like probably like really intensely self-hating, you know, kid that like, I, I, I really was intimidated by like DIY punkers and I ended up being like, super DIY punk, like, you know what I mean? Like, like, and however I can, you know, I don't look like it or really like act like it, but like the way that I think about how my life unfolded and just the absolute brutality of trying to run a business on your own and booking your own tours and doing all that shit that you like admire when you're dipping into that world. Like, I mean, it's like, it's kind of funny. I fucking love that. And out of, I've interviewed God knows how many people that was the first time it's had that, that trajectory. Cause usually it's know, the, it the kid gives happened. them a minor threat record and then they're off to the races or they got an indie rock record REM and then they go off to the races. It's, it was like you were intimidated yep. into it. hundred <laughs> mm-hmm. percent. And shame, and shame to do it. But, but it also came in some weird way too. It, it, it came like, like later, but it really came to me. Do you know what I mean? When I figured out the aspect of community that you need to sustain yourself as a working class, lower, you know, like middle-class artist, like the, the kind of safety net that you're seeking and the, the connection, the true connection that you're seeking, like the, and the, the, the kind of the socialist ethos of like art making it was, it was, it burned into my DNA. It wasn't just like a position. You know what I mean? It was like a, it was like an, an unerring like compass, you know? That's and, almost and, and, like and, you and, delayed it. It's almost like that mid, when you were probably on your bender, <laughs> it was, you yeah. were almost like your brain was like waiting for it. Yeah, I, I, you're probably right, man. That's really yeah, cool. Absolutely. It, it, it was, must have been that powerful. And to have it happen that late, it's one thing when you're a kid and you've got, yeah. you know, the world, it's another one when it's later. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because it was never a, a peer experience for me. You know, it wasn't like, I, I really, you know, every, we all do what our friends do and that's totally cool. You know what I mean? And I had like, like a completely different friend group. And, and I think it was like all this stuff came out of being like really, really isolated during college. And when I left college, I moved to San Francisco to, to try to sustain and be in a relationship with Susan, um, the girl who picked up the needle on that Elvis Costello record. And so it just, it came to me in a completely different way. And it wasn't, 
it wasn't part of a scene at all. It was just like a, like a personal epiphany, you know? Isn't that interesting about that? That even if you talk about, you weren't part of the scene. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't shows. It wasn't record swaps. It was sort of this out of body experience just on the music. And I think, or even just that, like the community. And that's what I think is so powerful about it. It's just, you talk about that safety net or true connection. If there's people at work and you say a couple bands or you just mention something and you're instantly at ease if they say X, Y, and Z. And it's not a cool thing. It's not, it's just a, oh, I can, you know, you get it. You get the, the ethos. And I think to, for you to have that happen like that, that's, a, that's really powerful. Yeah, I I agree. It changed my life <laughs> for sure. Do you remember the when you realized that you could write a song? Do you do you remember that moment? Yeah, I was. My mom bought me a four track when I was um, when I was I think I was thirteen, and it was a four two four a Tascam four two four, and I became like really really obsessed with like multi track recording, and I I, I had some piano kind of like theory. And I, I had kind of, you know, I was just taking in, in, in my middle school, there was like, I, there was actually like guitar. There was like a guitar class. You could take, I mean, it was a public school, but they had like a music class where guitar was available to, you know, for, for study. So I started taking guitar like classes in middle school and it, just the experience of just going into, I, I lived in, in like the basement of, of, we lived in like a, like a town, it was like a townhouse and we lived in, the, and I lived in the basement. So I had like a certain amount of like sound isolation and, um, and space from the rest of my family. And so there is a local rock station called DC 101. Yeah. I, it, I'm, it has to, yeah, it has to be obliterated now, but like, they had this like, it's wild because they had this like Sunday night show. I think it was like at 11 PM or midnight. And it was like a local demo show or some like, you know, just send in your shit. And so I, I wrote a song, I recorded it and, and I mailed it in. And I actually was so, um, you know, I, confused. And also I was not like an egotistical kid. Like I just did not ever think that it would be played. I just, I wanted to, you know, it's like a lotto ticket thing. And then a couple months later, I was listening to the show and they played the song. And it, that, that again was one of those like crazy, I remember being like jumping up and down and going like insane to hear the song because it's super compressed and limited and loud and, and exciting on, you know, it's probably brighter and like, it just sounds like it's being crank through a fucking lightning bolt. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like I just couldn't believe how um, exciting it was that what I was doing was like being transmitted out there. What did and they say? Did they that, say anything before? Did they, did, did they front no, sell it or back sell it? No, they probably were. I, I don't remember, but they were probably like, that's from, from <laughs> that's probably just some rickety ass, like, you know what I mean? Like graveyard show where they just like, list in a hurry like the nine things they just played and then they move on i mean i actually just don't remember i was just so overwhelmed and yeah i mean those 
I mean, I'm kind of giving you like these massive markers. What happened after that then? You must have been so motivated to – that four track must have got some extra work. Yeah, I mean, I probably made, I don't know, 30 full links on that thing that no one ever heard. But I learned how to write songs and I learned how to put together a record. And my brother listened to him and he gave me feedback and he was savvy and he he loved me. And so that's, yeah, I mean, no one could say that I didn't use every piece of musical gear that was put in front of me. That's for damn sure. That's amazing. I mean, again, the, there was a radio show. In, I grew up in Vermont, which super small place, not much going on. They had a, you know, a, a, like a like a metal show on the classic rock station on Saturday nights for two hours. And it was at the same time as Headbangers Ball. So I would have Headbangers Ball on the TV and have the radio show on and they would be giving away tickets or CDs. And, you know, they you would try to request and like, you know, get it on there. And when you did, you had that same feeling. I, I never had my song played on the radio, but that must have been like too. It's like, wait a minute, this is my town. And they're, you know, saying something at that age. That's like a. No, it's nuts. It's nuts. <laughs> it's nuts. It's it is. It's, it's like it, it's like it's like a hundred Instagram likes. If 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 we need to yeah. relate it to something today, I know. Well, <laughs> this is how nuts it is. Like I've been doing. I've made records for, you know, for fifteen the past fifteen years. For the past twenty years, I've made records, and I never ever turned on the radio and heard one of my songs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I never turned on a college radio station on tour. You know what I mean? Like. It's rare. I mean, I'm sure it happens if you're Supi on Stevens, but it's actually like quite rare to catch someone playing on actual like broadcast. And it's not like the DC 101 told you. Like you had to listen. No, they didn't. I had to listen. And and honestly, if I just imagine that I hadn't have like turned on the radio. Yeah. It's not like I was like camping out every weekend. You know what I mean? Like, like I, I could have easily you know, not heard that and not had my brain like kind of reform every single neural pathway for the rest of my life and like done something else, which, Hey, who knows? Maybe, maybe it could have been like amazing too. I mean, I, I think all of this is great. I think that what, whatever thing you forge, forge out is you're, you're going to, it's going to be a clusterfuck regardless of what happens. So I love that. I love that you didn't even know. And what if you weren't listening or you, your mom called you upstairs, something real quick, like what would have happened? Uh, I love that. I mean, I always think too, of when you're before the cell phone, you would go to, you would tell everybody, Hey, we're meeting at the mall at three to go to the movie. And it's not like you were texting on the way and double checking and where are you? Did you just park? Like I'm here. No, if you're not if you're not in front of the movie theater at three, you're not going to see American Tale. That's just how it is. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And touring without cell phones, holy shit, man! I mean, I'm sure this is like a like a it's like a kind of potentially boring topic because anyone who had to do it without a cell phone wants to talk about it because it was so unbelievably annoying. (laughs) (laughs) So let's not talk about it, but God was annoying. So you moved to SF and the, what was the, what was the, uh, it was, it was a girl, right? That's why you moved. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we didn't make it. And like, I, I, like she, yeah, we didn't make it, and it sucks, but that, that's life, so, you know, what, what are you going to do? Yeah. It's, still, it's, funny. it's like, there's, like, losses that you just can't take. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there are bigger losses that I've had that I've been, like, like completely 
fine with like accepting, but that one stuck with me for like a surprisingly long time. But yes, we didn't work out. And then I just kind of like filtered into like local bands. I took classes at UC Berkeley and I wanted to, you know, I, I, I did like well enough at, at university of Maryland that it was conceivable that I could have, um, gotten into some UC system grad program. So I started taking classes at UC Berkeley and then I got into a band and played my first, really my first live show outside of playing like, like my high school talent show. It was like, I only actually played two live shows before this show. Wow. One was a high school talent show. Yeah. And I remember at the high school talent show, that was the first time I'd ever played live. And I remember that we were very like, I remember feeling that we were very disorganized and like overwhelmed by playing in front of people. And there's, it was in like an auditorium, but there's probably like 30 or 40 people there. And I remember putting my guitar in the case and forgetting to clasp it and picking up my guitar and then the guitar fell out and then people in the audience laughed at me, which I think now I would literally be in tears if I did that to myself. I would just think it's the funniest thing, but that like humiliation also really somehow oddly, like I needed to correct that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Somehow I needed to get back on stage and like not be a joke, you know? And then the second time I played, we, we played at a, I was in this band called the id and this was, we were in high school and we covered, um, echoes. I like, uh, the, the Pink Floyd tune. Um, and I guess the side one of metal, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, we covered that in its entirety and we, we, we had like a set of like, basically we were like a cover band that did like, you know, psych and like stony shit. And we did, like pretty well for the first set. And then we decided to do cocaine because we were all a bunch of drug addicts and we did a bunch of, like a bunch of reels and then played our second set. And we were just completely, I remember being like, like also totally humiliated by like, Whoa, we, you can, this is, this is fragile. Like you can ruin this, you know? And we were terrible. And so the third show I played was a show in San Francisco and I was probably like 27 at the time. And I wanted to be a teacher. I didn't want to be in a band. I, that wasn't even an option for me. Do you know what I mean? Like I was working at, on Fishman's work serving like frozen crab to tourists, you know? I mean, it was like, I was working, I was serving Japanese tourists who were coming to get like, you know, crab and soft serve ice cream and like, you know, like, canned chowder served mm-hmm. to them on like massive banquet trays, you know, and it was a brutal job, but I was staining myself and, and I played one show at the sixth street rendezvous and there was probably six people there. And it like, that was it. I was like, this is what I want to do. Wow. I mean, that's great. I mean, again, you're like, you know, but think of how late that is too. I know it's so late and my path is so weird. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think it's, it's good or bad. I just think it's like, it's just a weird path for someone to really like commit to playing music. Um, what you reminded me about your second show was I, I was paid to play for my mom's boss's daughter's birthday party. And it was, Mm -hmm. they rented out a thing. I asked another guitar player to come by to play with us 
and he was high on acid and I couldn't get him to play the song that we were playing. So he would start a different song while we played. And so I would, to keep him up there, I just turned off the amp. And so he wouldn't even know if he was on or off. And he kept looking at his guitar, trying to figure out why the sound wasn't happening. And finally, I like unplugged it. So he, the entire show, we're playing for my mom's boss's daughter. And he's not even making a sound. It was one of those moments where I was like, I do not want to do that. (laughs) That's, that's pretty incredible, man. <laughs> right? Like, that's nuts. <laughs> that's when I said, don't do drugs, Tom. Don't do drugs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that I, is not a whole lot of love. You are playing, uh, you know, yeah. another song. <laughs> yeah. So. Yes. What was the leap to the studio? And when did you start thinking about it? Because you did have the four track, which I think your mom, that's another huge moment. Your mom giving you a four track. That's fucking amazing. Well, she always supported me like she was really the only person that like ever that she had like a sustaining and like true faith in me that was probably completely delusional and just strictly based on me being her son but like it was the most sustaining and like it it was the like the through line of my life for sure and so yeah so I was completely in love with like studio culture and looking at the back of records or gates, you know, the inside of like a gatefold and seeing like these, like these like studio shots, you know, like like, the middle of the queen record or like Amagama, all the, like the photos of like percussion laid out in the road and like any kind of studio or console photograph to me was just like iconic. Like it did something to me. And when I, everything with me is late. When I was 31, I, started tiny telephone and the way that started was we were me and nine other people were renting a uh, a pretty modest warehouse in um in san francisco in the mission um and it you know the mission now is like nice and it's a presentable you know area of town and it wasn't like it wasn't like uh you know like uh, karachi but it was like kind of like a busted up area when we rented it and and we rented uh i think it was i want to say it was 1700 square feet and it was 660 dollars so there was 10 people we paid 60 dollars each a month and we rehearsed it was like a rehearsal co-op and so we slowly decided to turn it into a recording studio and we you know the other people in the co-op were savvier than me one of them was a contractor and we would just build on weekends and honestly mostly they like were more motivated than me because I didn't see that as a, I didn't see how it would work. I didn't see how a co-op would work with everyone, you know, having completely different ideas. And it just felt like there was so, it was hard enough to even schedule like a band rehearsing that it just didn't feel like. So eventually the co-op started um, fraying because a band broke up. Another band moved out of town and one of like an engineer hero of mine owned a studio called Blowdown that I'd recorded in once. And he lost his building because they eminent domained him when the the, the San Francisco Giants stadium got like uh, approved when he was somewhere in like the center field or left field of this, of the, the AT&T park. So they like kicked him out and I went to a show that I knew he was going to be at and I pitched him on, Hey, 
do you want to be my partner? This was the first move of many that I did like this. So I went and found him and he was again, a big hero. His name is Greg Freeman and he's a legend here. And he actually was working. He's, we've kept in touch so much. He was working in the studio like last year working on a record. So I still, he's still, he's still in my orbit. Like, so he, um, he, you know, he, he got it. He was like, yeah, when you see this face. And I was like, man, like it's kind of is a, it, the, the shell could work for you and we can like, you know, finish the construction you need and we'll all manage you and like book the studio and you'll just engineer everything. So it worked out. He came in and he's, he was so um, like revered and under market and like, like on the level that he just was like, I mean, he probably worked there 28 days a month. So it's just, it just was the start of the studio being busy all the time. And then I just, I kept leapfrogging on that idea. My next partner was John Croslin when Greg uh, retired from engineering full time. I like got into spoon heavily and I got obsessed with their, er, the, the engineer that made their first three records. His name's John Croslin. He currently lives in Austin. And I kind of like poached him from Austin and got him to move here. And he was my, partner for five years and it was the same kind of scenario where he brought gear I booked him I managed him I kind of like took care of the studio and he would take care of it for me when I started touring and so that slowly just got bigger and bigger and bigger where I was able to build a B room and then slowly I was able to borrow money um, from banks and from like people on Twitter and I was able to build Oakland so from that beginning point from you know I was 31 when I started the business I mean I was a waiter at the time, <laughs> I mean, I was, I didn't really have anything going on at all. Do you know what I mean? Like I was in a very, very unsuccessful local band. I mean, I remember that we, we could draw maybe 10 to 15 people at a show on a good night. And I was in that band for five years. So think about that. I mean, also too, I mean, you talk about this starting later and later. Sometimes you see on Twitter, you'll see like the, you know, this person wrote their first book at 40 or this person started this at 50. And I think your moments speak to that of if you build, if you do something instead of it's one thing, yes, you can listen to music or watch TV or consume something. But when you make things or when you, like you said, reached out to Greg it turns into things and it doesn't matter what age it is because if you've got an idea and this studio, you know, you starting it then, um, or even if the band all, it, it it doesn't matter. It it, like, so if you didn't start a band at 20, fine, start one when you're 30. I remember being like 30 and thinking, fuck my life's over. Like, you know, like, like it felt like I would, it felt like there was absolutely no possibility or even like the cultural, like, like, um, like it didn't even feel like the culture could say yes to me starting like a music career at that point. Do you know what I mean? It felt like the, this was, the door was like closed and that's like actually for the best. You know what I mean? Like, like, you know, there, there's, there are rules here that are just not like, you know, pushed, pushed against. And like, I, man, I mean, I, 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 so I was a full-time waiter and I remember the day I, I still have the sign-in book. I remember it was like, um, like a Tintin, like a sign, sign-in book. And I remember writing and I still have it. It's still at the studio. And I remember writing 
tiny telephone. <laughs> it was actually September 11th, 1997. And we actually had to change the anniversary <laughs> because it was just like when we had a party, it just was like not appropriate. Yeah, it's not appropriate. <laughs> yeah, just like just move the day, you know what I mean? Just slide it over a little bit. It was, like, it was the 12th. Remember, <laughs> yeah, it was the 12th. Absolutely the 12th. And I remember um, writing that in and being embarrassed. Like, okay, this is too little too late. You know, and I just didn't, you know, there's many days that I think it was too little, too late still, but that's just depression. You know, that's just my morbid, broken brain kind of beating me down. And it doesn't always do that, but sometimes it does that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, basically, I eventually learned that you can just like construct your own narrative if you do the work. I mean, it's not going to maybe be the most elegant thing or the most successful thing, but it's better than like, like getting bitter that something didn't happen. You know what I, mean? mm-hmm. like, I really can't ever feel that, you know? I mean, you're right. It's just, just start doing stuff. And when you meet the right people and you start talking and you have a great thing that you believe in, people are going to gravitate to it. Absolutely. The, the other thing though, that's a problem with that is that I learned later is that, you start to, you have to exert your will to even like, like move one millimeter towards the direction that you want to go. And it's hard to not manipulate everyone all the time, like in regards to everything. (laughs) I mean, and I, and I mean like, where should we go to dinner? Like what, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. like, like it's like, you become like kind of a monster in some ways. Like I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to like have a insight that, that I'm not the, the, the narrative that I tell myself about myself is, is not accurate. And, and I'm not like a terrible person, but I think I'm exhausting and I think that I'm manipulative. And I think that I'm like, like really, mentally ill sometimes in a way that can cause a lot of damage to people around me. And, and there's way, 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 way worse people than me. I'm like not toxic and I don't like cause long-term damage or do anything that's like squirrely. But when you have to exert your will to like build a business, you get kind of crazy. You, you know what I mean? You do and you can't turn it off. So like, for instance, when you're starting to tell everyone that, like, we need to, like, build another location in Oakland that will cost a million dollars to build, and I will borrow all the money from using Twitter and guilting, like, tech people who feel like they're, you know, they, they don't want to push out artists, but it's part of what happens when, you know, trillions of dollars pour into, like, a small little geographic area. And you, I don't know, I just, I, I have, like, had some, like, maybe like dark insight into how potentially exhausting I can be to be around. And that kind of sucks. But also I think the, 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 that drive, I so, I so think it keeps people with you. They, it's almost that you're so serious about it 
and people are going to come along and they're going to understand that sometimes it's difficult and sometimes it's easy. And I don't know. I, I, I don't like the easy road. I think the when you try something and it's not, it's never been done or this is, you know, this is the way it's always been. I can't stand that. Maybe that's the punk and hardcore in me. <laughs> like, I don't want that, yeah. but maybe that's what that is. It's like, this is a hard decision. I'm making it and I'm not going to fail. And, and, there is like with everything in life, there is like, there's just, there's the cost, man. There's like, what's the cost of this transaction, whether it's emotional or, or like, or just, just like pure capital. But I I think that, yeah, I'm sure that people in my life recognize that it's like this too. I, I believe from the people that I've recorded and produced and toured with and I'm friends with who are very, very successful, either front people or songwriters, or they're branded in some way as like a writer of songs or books or poetry. You have to have a strain of narcissism. It will, you will not fucking sustain yourself if you don't. Because you will be shredded by expectation, criticism, self-doubt. You will fucking lacerate yourself. And so you have to have a certain amount of narcissism. And so can you control it? Like, can you keep it in check? Do you recognize it? Like, I'm just trying to have enough insight to, to minimize the damage of what I have, which is like an associopathic a potential for very light sociopathic manipulation, which sounds like an oxymoron. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, though. So do you, I also, yeah, you mentioned earlier, you know, the sort of the, you had that document and you kind of saved it. With the analog recordings that you do and you're very, you know, specific that that's how you want to do it. And I've, you know, there's been interviews and stuff about talking about that. But do you think about the preservation and the difference between a hard drive and a two inch tape. And maybe that goes even deeper to you're also a, you know, of a, a photographer and photos and moments in time that might not seem important are important later. Do you think about that? Do you think about your legacy or other bands or even your life? And, and in, in that way, I used to, I used to, you used to, really, how come really, I really, I, I really used to believe, I don't think it's false, but I really used to believe that that, that was true. And I don't, um, I don't believe any of it anymore. And I don't, I don't, it's not a sad, it was not a sad like realization. I just, I just don't, I don't believe so much of what I used to believe. And it doesn't mean that somehow I'm not, perpetuating that stuff because I'm clearly running a business that's based on linear recording. And like, it's almost like, it's like, you know, I, I grow organic vegetables, but I'm somehow like, you know, into like GMO shit. You know what I mean? It's not, it's so complicated for me to even express for stuff. I, I don't believe that it matters if anything is preserved. I don't believe that it matters if, if, something that's perceived to be important or not. And and maybe this is just like the dissolution of my own ego or like the, the, um, I don't know. My mom died two years ago and it kind of like, 
it broke something in me that's like permanent and it it like it kind of opened this like horrific door this like vault into true death and true horror and when i saw that it just none of this stuff mattered anymore you know and like it's not it wasn't it, again it wasn't like like, what do I do now? This, what I believed in is not true anymore. It's just that I can't flex those same muscles anymore. You know, I don't, it, it's, I don't know if I'm nihilistic or I don't know if I just am really fucking sad. I don't, I don't know what it is, but, but like, I can't <clears throat> say with any precision, um, something definite about all of that stuff anymore in a way that I, really, really lived it. I was willing to run up massive debts to like stake my claim in that, in that race. You know what I mean? Yeah. I like, I bought seven Studer 24 track machines. Like I was not fucking around, you know? And again, like that may have also been smart on a business in a business, you know, sense that we're, we're, we have a niche business that's successful because we've committed to a process that changes the way the record is made. Like if you record a linear tape record, it's just simply a different record. And I think that that can be inherently value valuable because there's nothing but pro tools studios in the U S you know, there's probably like 50,000 studios. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, it's great. I love it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a democratic person at heart. And I just think that if there's like, pure democracy at work that it has to be a good thing. Um, so I'm happy to like be part of tiny telephone, like the ethos, but I don't, I don't believe in it anymore. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a true believer anymore. It's interesting because the opposite happened. I had, my dad passed away two years ago and the opposite thing happened where I wanted to remember things more because I we had mementos and we had things, but I didn't have maybe the voice or I didn't have certain things. There were photos, but it just, it it was, it was almost like I had missed out. So there was moments where I'm remembering to document or remembering to think about those things with others. And when they do happen, it's almost like easier if that makes sense. And I think from the music side as a band, when you first start out your first show and you had those great memories, but what if you had the photo or what if you had like a clip of that and what does that help you as a career, but also what does that do to have you remember that moment and maybe think about it in a different way than if, if you didn't know, if you didn't have the photo or if you didn't have it. First off, I'm really sorry about you losing your dad. Because, man, that shit, shit fucks you up, man. It does. Yeah. Fucking cancer, but man. It, I'm really sorry. Yeah. I'm really sorry. But you know, but that's kind of, you're right. It, 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 it does. It, it clicks something in you. Yeah. I wish that I had had, your, I think your reaction is like more mature. And I think, you know, my mom left me a voicemail like two hours before she died. And like... I still haven't listened to it. Really? Probably the, yeah. And it's still there. It's archived. I will listen to it one day. And it's probably the biggest regret in my life in some ways that I can't really face. I can't face it. You know what I mean? Like I'm a strong fucking person, you know? And I'm like, I can't do that. And like, it's incredibly troubling to me to reflect on my 
family life and, and the memory of my, my mom and my family. It's just, it's just, un, it's unbearable. And it feels like I can't escape this like baseline of, of pain and, you know, I, I don't know. So is it more I'm, for I'm you living in the moment and moving forward and tomorrow's this and versus looking back at this time? Yeah, because it's simply just unbearable to reflect on the past. I just, I can't, I didn't even understand what that would mean. I, 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 I just would, would never have seen this coming because I've been like a very realistic and not unsentimental, but I'm, I'm like really quick to heal and I'm, I'm pretty rigorous in my thinking about like, the real shit, you know, like I, I get it. I understand. I knew my mom was going to die. You know what I mean? I know all this stuff, but like, and, and nothing has ever affected me ever in the way that, that when my mom died, what it did to me, it just, it was, it was like, like 10,000 times more like fucked up for me. And, and I, and I, I, I really, I had such a good, relationship with my mom and she was like the only stable like force in my life. I, I had a very chaotic um, childhood and I, I just, it just broke, it broke something, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm like trying to, I'm, I'm really trying to, to, to put it back together, you know, and, 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 it, and, and I, I, I probably will, you know, I've, I've, I've struck, I've had like mental health issues for my whole life. And I, and I, and I've like, I definitely like won those battles, you know? I mean, I, I have not, I haven't folded, you know? And that's like, what are the, you know, the flaming lips tunes, like the fight for our sanity is the fight of our lives. I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember it, but it, but it is true. I mean, I fought my, my entire life just to be, like happy, you know, you know, that brings up sort of an interesting, th- a couple points I wanted to bring up is the sort of the, you know, your music coming into my life, uh, when it came, when the, your first solo record, and then also kind of that term of emo and how people just see this as like a sad thing or, you know, it's, it's depressed. It's your, your cutting. And I never thought of it that way. I thought of it as euphoric, uh, uplifting um you know something of these moments of you know music were hitting an emotional chord but it wasn't necessarily negative or sad and i find joy in music music is joy we get to do music and so the that point of you know that word you know being emotional or even you saying i've had stuff with mental health and that being okay a long time ago was sort of frowned upon and you couldn't say anything and now it's okay to, and I think it's great that that happens, but the word emo in itself, I don't know if you had any interactions with it or remember hearing that term, but it just seems like, you know, it's obviously the word everybody wants to run away from um, still to this day, but it just seems like it's got this negative thing and it's okay that you said, I'm having trouble. Yes. Yeah. Well, to me, like the, like, like emo stuff to me was like, it was like vulnerability. Do you know what I mean? Like that's when I think about like, like Jeremy Enoch's first solo record. Like, I think that is like that to me, that was like one of the most important records 
for me. And it was like the, it was just an incredibly vulnerable, like, set of songs. Like that to me is what what drew me into that world, you know. But the the funny thing is about stuff that's not like like loved and accepted. I remember I got obsessed with this band called Prefab Sprout, and I mean obsessed. They put out a record called Two Wheels Good. I bought it when it came out. And you couldn't pay someone to like that band when that record was released. I mean, they might take your money, but I mean, and especially the record before that called Swoon, which was like a very irritating record for people to hear at that time. Like, and I mean like 99 out of a hundred people of my peers. <laughs> and that record, that band has like somehow clawed their way into like this, like, amazing place of respectability, which I find to be so fucking funny. Like, and I love that record, like top to bottom. And I've loved it forever. So I think that like anything that is kind of like, like dismissed, it's very powerful. Like that's good. That's a good position. You want to, you, you, that's fine. It's all good. You know, what's interesting about that is I was going to bring up one of your records that was, you know, it was great review on pitchfork and how do you feel about you know and that can be a blessing and a curse these are these are both ways this isn't one or the other but it's interesting when a band is shit on by it could be any outlet and i think that has lasting effects and i think emo got you know ridiculed in the press and disrespected for years and years and years and years and now 20 years later we're getting retrospectives on how great it was when then it's like what 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 happened if it was called indie rock and maybe they got a flaming lips tour instead of a shitty review and sort of yes. you know dismissed yep. oh, like yeah. what yeah. those sort of i mean for better or for worse or easier or harder you know, having that happen for one of your records, I think it was Pixel Revolt. Um, you know, having yeah. that happen, it, it's 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 almost like I I don't know. I like I get like a, such a weird feeling of like what happens when you have a great review and like s- staying up for it. Well, you know, it's funny because I think about this stuff, and I mean, we know that music is like context, and like the the the, the construct is so fake and phony. It might as well be like. Like, like, a, like a like a press release from like like a, the White House or something. I'm not speaking much. I'm saying like I know any what you mean. Administ- any administration. This is such a completely like there are records that are like my friends are like, man, you got to hear this record. It's like a radical kind of like super out. Uh, like album that I think will blow you away. And I, and I listen to it and I'm just like, man, this is like, this is like fucking you're driving to like Chuck and Cheese to pick up the kids or something. It's like the most suburban shit I've ever heard in my life. But somehow the context of this music that the, the affiliated acts, the, the, the savviness of the, of the player. I mean, so much of it is completely phony. And, and I see this from the inside all the time and I don't, it doesn't bum me out. I just think it's like, oh, that's really good marketing. Man. If you can, if you can make anything fly, you know what I mean. Like, mm-hmm. It's so often completely disconnected from the actual content of the music, you know. 
that it's, again, it's like that clothing thing. It's just like, what kind of shirt are you wearing to the party? And does it actually mean anything about what you're going to say? Do you know what I mean? Because you might look like hip as fuck, but then like start like, you know, kind of walking back. Like, you you know, that maybe Ben Shapiro has a few interesting things to say. He's not a total asshole. And you're like, oh my God, this person's fucking crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So like I, and this getting to the review thing, like the reviews, I think it's like if someone tells you you're really attractive when you're when you're younger, male or female, it fucks you up. And if you don't have a completely like solid developed ego, you will do weird shit. You will have weird thoughts, you will do weird stuff aesthetically, musically and otherwise and live by the sword, die by the sword. When you get a good review, you're going to get slews of bad reviews. You could be fucking Neil Young. You could be Jeff Tweedy. You could be Tame Impala. You could be Death Grips. It doesn't matter. Like, if you even, like, if you take the positive shit that people write about you, you're actually even more vulnerable to the negative because your brain is broken, because you're a fucking musician. You know what I mean? You're like a songwriter and you're really sensitive. And it's almost like you learn to tune out all of the positive stuff because you, when you're playing and touring, people come up to you after show, great show. No one ever comes up to you after a show and gives you criticism ever. So you just start to immediately tune out anything that's positive. And then when someone criticizes you, it, it actually sounds like the truth. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. think about it. Like, someone's actually giving a counter narrative that's like not like a, a socially pressurized like statement. You're just like, Oh, I guess that, you know, I, that, that I'm, my best record is behind me. Like that sounds accurate. You know what I mean? Like, like, like that's, that just happens. Do or, you think or, that takes oh, context? Guess. Do you think it takes someone that knows, like if someone reviews a John Vanderslice record and they skew it, but they skew it in a way that you saw that they've actually listened to every single record since, uh, does that oh, need yeah. to happen? Cause you think that's the worst. Like I think if you're at least you, if someone, so you want, is it somebody coming in clean doing it or is it somebody that, that it knows your history? Do you think it doesn't matter? I think that this is what hurts. What hurts. It's simply just, it's just that you are a striving multinational micro business and you need everyone lined up behind you. It's not even your ego on a certain level. It's keeping your crew, whether it's like your label or your publicist, it's or your TM or your bandmates, it's keeping everyone excited and on board. And when you get like, you know, like cultural pushback, it just, it rattles the boat. You know what I mean? It like, and, and it, that's what actually fucks with your head more than anything. <laughs> like, like, first off, I'm like a first amendment absolutist. Like I don't have any problem with anyone writing me an email. That's like, this is why this record is not, doesn't work as a record. Like anyone can say anything and that they're even engaging me in a conversation is like amazing. I'm completely my DNA says yes to criticism. I don't have any issue with it at all. But 
the thing that really fucks with you is when it's an outlet that has power and pitchfork is definitely one of the very few that have power and that can rattle the crew. I mean, fuck, I was, um, Travis Morrison from, Oh, right. From dismemberment plan. He did that record with Chris Walla, tiny telephone. They got a 0.0. You're and fucking right. Close. Yep. He did it at tiny telephone. And I, and also that record was actually like, it's actually a pretty good record. It's, it's, he, the reason why, this is my personal belief, and I, I don't, I can't really, I can't really back this up, but this is my personal belief. Travis at the time was very pro-invasion of Iraq, and I believe that he was saying some of this publicly. And I think that that's part of the reason why he got a 0.0, because if you listen to the record, it actually, it's nothing to target. It doesn't make sense. It's not like a departure in many ways from dismemberment plan. It's not like a, it's not like a, 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 a void. Mm-hmm. Of a, it's not a sellout. It's not a statement. It's not a, and he no, did it with Chris Walla who is like fond upon. Yes. And so I, I just saw his crew basically just like say, okay, we can't really like, back this record because it's so broken now. And again, it's like if you got like 10,000 negative reviews from Yelp in like one day, like that is, it's real. And, and criticism, like it, the cool thing is that if you're a careerist, this stuff becomes less and less important. It's actually, it's, it doesn't move the needle as much as you'd think when you get a positive review and it doesn't actually move the needle as much as you think in the negative way either. So as you keep making records and forge your own identity and just try to do the best fucking work you can, you become a little bit more immune, but your ego can get really fucking sore, man. Like, because you are exhausted from like, you basically are, criticized for a living and this and it's beautiful because if you're not being criticized you're not making fucking dent man and there's no one showing up when you play in humber you know what i mean yeah. like you have to be criticized but there also has to be an arc to the criticism like it's not a story to just say that like this person is making a good record every time <laughs> like there's not it doesn't happen and also there has to be an arc to this stuff and like i don't i don't have any negative feelings about this stuff but but I, I do, I do think that like I have stopped believing in concrete pronouncement pronouncements about art in the same way that that I don't really believe in like tape and linear recording in quite the same way because I believe everything's context and I believe that everything is like mutable. Like you listen to music. I believe strongly that you listen to music a lot based on your own stereo. Like, how do you listen to music? If you listen to music only in the car, I can tell you that you're not going to be listening to classical music, probably. It doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And if you are even remotely open to rap music, you might really start to skew everything you listen to to rap because rhythmic information, the dynamic information, the energy the um, kind of like sonic footprint, it works with a car stereo. And it's interesting because I have three 
stereos that I listen to. I have one in my living room that's like a, as a turntable and it has good speakers. And like, I listen to a lot. I'm listening to Suspiria, the Tom York record a lot. I'm listening to a lot of like hi-fi kind of like interesting art records, you know, like, like it's, it's stuff that's like actually like, you know, like the prefab sprout or I'm, I'm just going to tell you like Tangerine Dream Rubicon. The Patrick um, Cowley record, Heroes, David Bowie, Chief Commander Ebenezer Obey, Noise 7086, sorry. Um, so stuff like that. And then I have another stereo that's like a budget stereo hooked up to Spotify at my desk. And I listen to like just ragged, you know, lo-fi indie shit and rap all day long. I don't ever listen to anything. You know what I mean? Like the stereo has dictated that. It's what it, what sounds good on it, and in my car, it's one hundred percent rap music. Like with I, I when I tour, I probably listen to like six or seven hours of rap a day. I mean, that's insane. I don't or podcasts, you know, and so that's I've kind of modulated a lot of my views. You know, David Burns said in, in his book, which I did not read, but someone told me this that. The, the size of venues and the acoustic spaces really changed how bands wrote music and perform music. And it's true. It makes total sense. Yeah. And I think too, that you saying earlier about being exhausted from it and you having to kind of push through and, 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 and be prolific, but also look at somebody's career as a whole. And I think it's now it's like, you've got, Oh, it's this last record and they're, they're done. And I think it, because of the internet and how fast things are shared, it's sometimes maybe that, that definitely happened with a Rolling Stone review or something like they were done or, but there was also less time for people to sort of discuss it back and forth somehow. Like it wasn't a, it wasn't as just this immediate, like, well, this is it and we're moving on. And guess what? Monday I have a clean slate. I don't even remember what Friday was, but it just seems like if you're prolific and you stick through it, you've got a certain track, like a band that's still together and writes, they're on their 10th record and they've got an arc and people debate and talk about the records, kind of like Death Cab, you know, people debate. Yeah. But if someone goes away and comes back, there's almost a different response, it, like a nostalgic response when the music never went away, they just went away. So you really have to be... And then people responding to that, you have to be so strong in what you do. And I think you probably see that in the studio with people on their sixth record or seventh record and almost, it, you can almost see it in their eyes. Oh, absolutely, man. I mean, you, and you see both, you see people who are incredibly resolved and very like clear about their marching orders. And then you see other people who are totally lost. You know, like they, they, they're almost like they're involuntarily, you know what I mean? They don't want to play anymore. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're like been roughed up, you know? And like, I don't know, man, it is, it's the real shit. Yeah. I mean, it's the real shit. I, all I know is that like, for me, I just had so much depression in the past couple of years and, and so much of just like my, my kind of directive was to stay alive and it completely changed the way that I felt about everything else. And, and I don't think that that was like wisdom or 
true knowledge. I just think it's like a response to like being at war with yourself, you know? And so it kind of focuses things in a way and hopefully <laughs> figure it out. But doesn't music help that, John? The making this record helped me for sure. I mean, in many ways it kind of saved me because I know how to write music. I know how to write a song and I'm, no matter what, we're like, we survived by getting good at craft. You know, this is, whether it was like growing food or like coopering or tending to horses or like hunting, we, this is what we've been doing for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's in our, it's in like our blood. And so, yeah, when, when, when you like, reconnect with the craft that you've been like, you know, trying to like get good at your entire life since you were 12 or 13. It really, it just, I was so much nicer than myself. You know, I was so much more sympathetic and I was, I had this like genuine, like belief that I was doing good work according to my own ideals. And it, it just, it changed kind of the tone of my interior conversation. And also it's a very communal, um, project, you know, you're with friends for many, many days and hours and touring is like a, a community celebration. And that stuff really helped because I was very isolated before I did that. And just the ability now that I, it's, it's great because. I'm not that big when I tour. Like I'm a small indie, I'm a very, I'm a working class indie artist. But I have um, Bob from Undertow is my booking agent with like house shows. So I have this like house show circuit that I can tap into that's really modular. You know, I could say, hey, I want to do, you know, eight shows in the Southeast in, in like March. Let's like scope it out, get ha- houses. And it's like a sustainable working class job. And then I have Mahmood from, from flower booking who does club stuff. And I, I don't like playing clubs and I'm also not really big enough to play clubs. So it's like a, you know, it can be like a, it can be a tough position to be in and it can be financially kind of fucked, but, um, but I'm doing, you know, some club shows just because of the record and it, and it work. you know, it's just better for the rollout of a record to actually not be in a, sold out house show that's completely off the radar from people, you know, (laughs) and, you know, and and so that feels really good for me that I like clawed my way back into that, even though it's very modest, like that feels that I always have this feels like a win. I get really, it feels like a win. And it feels like if I'm get like, feel like I have this, like, I'm really, really lonely and I, I, I need, to have this feeling of like traveling and driving on the 80 and like meeting up with friends that I haven't seen in a year. I have these little like pockets of these dates booked and it makes me like really happy, you know, like it gives me like this future me. That's like a, I know I'm happy when I tour. What I heard when I listened to the record, you'd sent me the, you know, the SoundCloud stuff. And now that you talk about this, I can feel a connection through the fingers as you're playing the notes or playing the keys or guitar of 
the moments and what you were trying to go through in that. I, that's how I felt. And it just like the song, like let it go. Like just the, yeah. the, the, the sounds, the, the, the output, it, it seemed like it was kind of, it, it was running through you out your fingers onto the instrument. Yeah. Because I was crazy. Man. I mean, that was like the height of my craziness. The, the bummer about that SoundCloud link is that the album actually sounds so much better than that. <laughs> I, it's remarkable to me how bad the SoundCloud code is. I think the SoundCloud almost has to be targeted because they're so much worse than Bandcamp, And they're, they're, they're like, even for like streaming the street, like, Apple Music sounds so much better. Wow. It's crazy. Like, it should be better. I yeah. love that. I you really, said the I same believe... thing that a kid would if he sent me a demo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. It's kind of dumb and ridiculous. Yeah, like, listen to it in this way. Or when people say to me, it's not mastered yet, and I'm like, what makes you think that mastering something is going to make it sound better? Like, like, it actually might sound worse, you know? Like, but, yeah. but it is, like, I, I think nothing worse than SoundCloud. Uh, honestly having this record be a release and and finding that community and 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 getting back on tour it's probably feels like a good routine again it, it feels like really necessary for me and it feels healthier than than some of the stuff i was doing before i mean i was definitely like i don't know man i was dipping back into drug use i was definitely like doing like really unhealthy things without causing permanent damage, I was thinking and behaving in ways that were potentially, uh, like awful. Yeah. And, and, and so you can say music sort of got you out of that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it saved me many times, you know, and, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like really, I don't know, at like I have a very uncomplicated relationship with writing and recording and it feels like that it's nice to be to want to make records again and I'll do it as long as I feel like doing it, but I definitely feel like continuing to record. Is there anything that you've want to do that you haven't done and obviously you'll do it later than everybody else based on everything else you've done. I'm kidding. Um but any other, you know, dreams or aspirations know, that, that you've been thinking about? I, I think I want to be in, I want to be in a relationship that's like, like a long-term sustaining relationship. Like, I think that that's my overall, like, I mean, it's a tough thing to want because you can't game the system, but that's what I, that's the thing that I like desire most is being in a relationship with, with, um, like someone is hopefully healthier than I am and and like I'm good in relationships and I'm good in partnerships and I'm, I'm like, I'm very lonely, you know, I've been like lonely for two years and it's like, it's just, it starts to fucking erode your, your like cells, you know, it's, it's really bad for you, you know? And, and I don't, I don't really have any doubt that it'll happen, but that's to me is the most important thing in my life. I don't, I'm not worried about the timeline for like another record or, I mean, that will most likely happen next year, but I, I just want to be in a relationship. I want to share my life with someone, you know, and, and I want to get out of debt too. I owe a lot of money from building the Oakland studio. <laughs> That's key. The key to get out of debt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. 
Cool. Is there anything else you wanted to mention? I really liked your questions, man. I, I really appreciate it. And I and I felt like listened to, and I felt like that that it was a completely present uh, event, and that's all that we're after. Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And for this current episode you're about to hear, I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also reprinted volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com